Hello and welcome to Yuskogans, the International Law Podcast. I've been recently thinking about exploring different stories of people and their work uh, in international law from all areas of the discipline uh, on the podcast. Uh, so I did what anybody in my place would have done. I went on Twitter and looked through international law Twitter. And this search led me to one of the most interesting feeds that I could find. And that was of Chris uh, Van Eyck, who's joined me today for a conversation. Uh, we haven't decided what we're going to talk about. So this, this should be fun. Uh, thank you, Chris, for being on the podcast. Uh, it's uh, lovely to have you. Thank you so much. I, I, my Twitter has, my mom doesn't think my Twitter is nearly that interesting. So thank you. Um, no, no. I, 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 and especially this week has been, you know, great for you. So I'm glad, you know, I'm capitalizing on, on that high. Oh, sure. No, it's, it, it is, I was telling uh, my boyfriend, it is the age of the international law podcast, but Use Cogens was was one of the first ones, I think, really to yeah, start. We, we started off in 2018, but uh, unfortunately, we weren't as consistent. So we only had 26 episodes so far. But yeah, in the last year or so, especially in COVID, uh, there's been an international podcast every week or something. Yeah, it's crazy. And to be fair, like even the UN Audiovisual Library isn't that consistent. So I think you guys are fine. Um, yeah, Chris, so tell me a bit about yourself, your background. How come you're doing what you're doing? I know you're at Cambridge, uh, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, so I, um, I'm half Dutch, half American. I grew up in sort of California first half of my life and then the Netherlands. And um, I studied at Leiden University College in The Hague, um, which has an interdisciplinary uh, international uh, project there called Global Justice. And I, I did basically what's an international law bachelor's in undergrad um, and found myself unable to practice law or really call myself an international lawyer even though I had learned, I think the most international law there that I ever had or may ever will, um, just the diversity of subjects. Then I did a master's in public international law at Leiden um, and delayed a year to finish my thesis and to uh, do some internships. Um, I interned at the International Commission on Missing Persons with their civil society initiatives uh, project. And uh, then I, I interned at the Asser Institute for a year doing uh, sort of research on memory laws and the legal governance of history, and then also anti-discrimination law, as well as some general things. And then while I was at Asser, I thought, okay, well, I still can't call myself a lawyer, so let's go get that actual qualifying law degree. And uh, now I'm in Cambridge, uh, finishing a sort of two-year affiliate bachelor's uh, degree in law. Wow, that, that, that's a handful. So you have done you know, a, lot, a lot of things in the past few years. Uh, and we just yeah. realized before we started recording this that we were at Leiden around the same time uh, when yeah. I was there in 2018 doing my LLM as well. Uh, I, I guess you were in the same program, but you, were, you started uh, before me. Yeah, a year before I would have. Um, which, I mean, I, I, if anyone's listening to this who's considering doing an LLM and in a program at the moment, the one thing I wish I'd done is take a year out and just sort of like, explore the working world or the world of international law and give myself a break. So maybe it would have been better had I studied with you. <laughs> how, how was Leiden? How was the experience? Leiden was, um, it's a lot of different things, isn't it? I, I was first at the Faculty of Governance and Global Affairs, and I found it really just fast moving and innovative and, and sort of willing to make room for me as a non-legal specialist and, and to accept interdisciplinary views very well. And Leiden, I think it was in the process of changing in that way. But, you know, going into a law school for me meant a lot of, of learning on the side about what a disciplinary law program was, that sort of thing. And, um, 
And in that sense, I sort of found myself missing the Hague a bit. But uh, I mean, the LLM has some teachers that just you can never come close to in terms of like how much they know and how much uh, they can teach you. So can't beat that. That makes sense. How, how, how come you, you know, decided to do international law and pursue this? Yeah. <clears throat> so um, LUC had a couple different majors that we could choose from. And I quickly kind of fell into international law. I'd done like MUN in high school kind of thing. Um, yeah, everybody did those. Yeah, we're all. Uh, <laughs> and I was very much into that sort of idea and very much frustrated with how sort of um, surreal that it got so quickly. Um, and I thought, okay, well, let's, time, let's learn the actual rules. And one of the first things that drew me to it actually was that indeterminacy of like, there is always at least two right answers. Um, which makes it a bit more interesting to argue, right? Um, and as I sort of got more into different fields, and now you see, I was, I was able to do like international criminal law and human rights and, and all sorts of law of the sea. Um, I even did some courses at the Leiden Law School in English and like comparative sexual orientation law and um, non-discrimination law, really cool things. <clears throat> I found myself very confused about what I would write my capstone on. And I thought to myself, everyone in bachelor's makes their capstone, there would be all and all, like, this is my future I'm writing, and that makes it impossible. So let me park somewhere cool that I don't want to go into later. How about space law? Uh, which uh, has turned out differently than I thought. How, how did space law come about? That, that's not the most common areas that, you know, a person uh, already international law, I would consider it to be a niche field in law. Yeah and then yeah. go into space law. So how did that come about? Um, so I'd done something in my international environmental law course. I'd done like a, my weekly presentation was on space law. Um, and so I had like a small, like kind of cameo of it so far. And I was pretty much just looking through Leiden faculty because we were able to ask kind of Leiden faculty to supervise us. And I knew that supervisors within LUC were very competitive so many people, so few people, uh, supervisors. And so I, I kind of marched into Tanya Mason-Zvan's office in Leiden, who, who is sort of the space lawyer, both in Leiden and in the general world. And um, I, I pretty much marched in ready to make a case for why I was competent enough to do this with her. And she was immediately on board, the most welcoming. And living in The Hague or, or in the area, maybe you have similar feelings, but it can be a little bit competitive sometimes in some fields. Yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> It's very yeah. competitive. So like the welcoming aspect of it, like I, I just kept coming back. Um, so this was in your bachelor's? That was in my bachelor's, yes. Uh, and then my master's, I focus more on uh, comparative foreign relations law and like how treaties uh, influence US and EU law. And then sort of did a whole bunch of other things. And then I keep going back to space. <laughs> so, so, so your bachelor's was in Dutch or was it in English? It was in English. I've only ever studied in English. Okay, but can you uh, can you speak Dutch? I couldn't. Um, <laughs> I didn't even try to learn. <laughs> I tell people who don't speak Dutch that I'm conversational, but it's it's been rusty because I've been living in the UK for a couple of years now, um, and I didn't grow up speaking it, so I had to learn. Okay, and and you and you grew up in the US for the first fourteen years of my life. Yeah. Okay. And then I in high school and uni in the Netherlands. Yeah, that's a very diverse. Geography experience. Yeah, you were saying something. I was gonna say, like, I'm sure you felt this too. The Netherlands is really annoying to try and learn Dutch because everybody he like hears your pain and will switch to English, and you just find yeah. yourself. Like, <laughs> and, and, it, speaking 
and it doesn't seem like that important because everybody as you can as you said can speak english and okay. and if, even if you try to speak dutch they respond back in english uh, so you know you're like you know much better off learning french or something and you're trapped in this like surreal conversation where both of you are uncomfortable and neither one's happy yeah <laughs> like, did you like did you like living in the netherlands i did it you can get around anywhere in like three hours or less Small by public yeah well and the public transport system which in america is not so great um and i knew i wanted to do international law so the u.s was sort of a tricky option to consider just because of how they deal with it and teach it differently um so the netherlands was, was great uh, i knew that i wanted to do law in the uk or to study in the uk at some point um of course i arrived just as brexit and covid hit so maybe it wasn't the best timing but uh what i am do? exactly i mean i am sort of uh all right here so far okay uh, so, so so i've been you know i've i've been doing a little bit of homework on what you have been doing <laughs> at least from your online profile so so you have written quite a bit on space law and it's uh, you know intersection with environmental law and the global commons uh, and also global south uh, you know the contribution of global south to this area as well uh, so would you consider yourself as somebody who wants to go into academia full time or like do a phd or you know yeah. come into practice Oh gosh, that's been the question. I think a lot of people, like, I don't know if you as well, but that's haunted me for a couple of years. I'm I, sorry, sorry for, you know, reminding yeah. you again. I, I came here because I wanted to be able to practice. And then again, COVID and Brexit hit. And I realized the way of qualifying in the UK, no matter kind of which route you take, requires some, some work experience. And in the COVID or post-COVID kind of job market i was really worried about being able to do that in a way that would allow me to stay make money and like you know uh, if i stay i get settled status basically so i thought maybe a phd maybe getting paid to sit somewhere and do what i like could be a good thing to do right now while things settle right so i did she's last year and uh, it did not go well <laughs> uh hopefully i see myself teaching someday but we'll see i i'm sure it's a very competitive process and a very painstaking process you know i i i i and i see you know people like uh, bashak you know you know bashak and uh, kosia you know and, and they're always dreading you know phd is not the easiest thing and it's it's so hard yeah. uh, you know it's so lonely sometimes so i i i've you know i've uh, struggled with the idea whether you know that's something i i would also want to do or not but mm -hmm. just the idea seems so daunting i don't know if you feel the same way yeah and like i i was helping to language edit a PhD when I worked at Acer and I, I was friends with a lot of people who were doing or just finished PhDs. And I had a decent window into like sort of that part of the process. Um, for me, it's, it's always been a thing of, I don't like being pigeonholed. And like, so even like some, sometimes I say I'm a space lawyer because that goes over well at, at bars or whatever. Um, but, you know, I, I really do a kind of law lately that is not within the realm of space law or what they a space lawyer would consider is normal like i'm doing twail i'm doing environmental law treaty interpretation um so so it, it's it's sort of difficult to place myself in a way that like admissions committees or funding committees will say ah yes we can admit and, and supervise that so you feel that you know they would want somebody who has a very specific focus which is not uh, overlapping with a lot of fields uh, is, is that what they're looking for um, well, for instance, like, uh, and I wrote a sort of angry blog, blog post about this uh, on Volker's blog, but um, <laughs> I'll read that. Please send it to me. 
It's fine. Yeah, I will. Um, basically, like if I apply to a generalist program, and I, this is all my intuition, right? I have no inside information on this, but it feels very much like they see space and get a bit like, oh, well, that's you know niche and specific. You should go study at one of these few places at the space law. Um, but if I would apply there, they would say, well, actually, what you're doing is a lot more environmental law and a lot more like like twail and space are not natural friends. Um, and there haven't been a lot of twail kind of studies of space law. So, you know, I'm sort of on unfamiliar territory, no matter where I go. And ironically, people seem a bit un like uh, unwilling to explore where no lawyer has gone before. <laughs> I, I guess it's scary to you know do something which which has not been done uh, before. I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, in theory, all PhDs do that. But yeah. true, true. Uh, so, so, so you know, just speaking about space law and the other areas that you have you know, mentioned, Twail and the you know the role of global south and environmental law. So, just to you know give you like a pop quiz uh, to put you on the spot. <laughs> don't don't worry. What 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 is what is space law and you know what what comes under it. Yeah, so space law is generally thought to be five treaties that were sort of negotiated and, and concluded between 1958 and sort of the late 1970s. Um, and there's sort of a preference for the black and white in space law. Uh, there, of course, is custom, but generally it's either not really seriously examined or taken into effect. And it's a body of rules that tries to establish outer space as sort of an area in which international law applies. There's, there's a rule of law and in which we use space in a way that sort of is, is uh, according to certain standards by the international community. There's a lot of holes in it because it was set up at a very specific time within international law where a lot of things were moving quickly. Uh, decolonization was happening. International responsibility was just being sort of thought, about, uh, thought up uh, environmentalism was being born. So like a lot of nascent and ending things were, were uh, kind of stealing the spotlight at the time. So today's space law can look a little bit patchy, but at the time it was one of the most progressive and forward thinking fields and almost everybody who was everyone was doing it. Right. Uh, so, you know, just, just a very random or stupid question. Uh, does the yeah. space belong to anybody? Uh, does somebody have a right to do you know, uh, own something or, you know, do exploratory activities in the space. How does it work? Right. So that's the Outer Space Treaty is sort of the main uh, sort of treaty. OST, yeah. OST. Yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll abbreviate from now on. Uh, is basically the idea is that space should be a thing that belongs to no one in a formal sense. Um, and that really came about because a lot of states had just gotten free of being owned by other states. And there was kind of this fear that extraterritorial jurisdiction would take the place of colonialism maybe, or, and, and I'm not convinced that didn't happen by the way. Um, and so in response, the idea was that space would be, whereas communists was sort of an idea. That word was thrown around a lot. I don't know if it has kind of a very clear meaning. In fact, it isn't itself really a rule. Um, but now since then, some norms have eroded and what before was sort of a detente has changed into a system in which maybe we can sort of use private like mineral resources in space, for instance. Um, what was originally a, a strategy to ensure that one or two states wouldn't dominate in lieu of the world has become a situation in which three or four states dominate <laughs> in lieu of the world and in which we're still talking about space mining 55 years later. Right. 
so I was, you know, briefly uh, looking at the paper that we've recently, you know, not recently, I, 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 I guess, uh, I'm not sure when it came out, but uh, it was, you know, it was making rounds on the internet. Uh, and, you know, since I was, uh, you know, scheduled to talk to you, so I was like, you know, just, just have a look at this paper, uh, which is titled Unstealing the Sky, Third World Equity in the Orbital Commons, uh, mm. which uh, is being, you know, rightly appreciated uh, by international academia. Uh, so, you know, I, I haven't, I'll be honest, I haven't read the paper completely. I just downloaded it today. I went through the abstract and the first few papers, first few pages. Days ago, please do not feel ashamed. Yeah. No, no, I, I actually found it interesting. So I will, you know, read it in its entirety. Uh, but, you know, just based on, you know, what, what I saw, um, you seem to emphasize that the existing space law is too much focused on the present and the contributions of the global south uh, in the global commons uh, governance uh, has been either ignored or sidelined or intentionally, uh, you know, erased. Uh, so, so what, what do you mean by that? <clears throat> okay, so a couple of different things. Procedurally, so between the first satellite and the first space treaty, the world population of states increased by half. We got like 42 or 43 new states. Oh, wow. Majority shifted. The global south became demographically a huge actor and sort of we don't look at that a lot. Space is often framed as a Cold War East-West kind of picture, right? This is also important because between the uh, sort of ad hoc committee on outer space in 1958 and 1961, when the sort of first committee expansion happened, between those like four years, Africa had doubled in size and was the biggest continent in terms of number of states. So things were changing. Uh, Pan-Africanism was in its heyday. Uh, there were solidarity efforts in Bandung and Accra and Cairo and Belgrade, all across uh, Global South kind of uh, constituencies, including places that were not formally independent. And space itself became a metaphor for a new age, a new era of independence for like, for instance, Kenya. That's a quote from the parliament in 1961. Um, so the time was a sort of very changing and important part of space law that we don't look at a lot. And these states all had a very strong view that this new area shouldn't be something that replicated past wrongs. And this to them seemed like an opportunity to do things differently. What is the international community and what should it be? was sort of a main question for a lot of global South states, but they weren't invited. Uh, Africa only had one state in the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space for the first third of the Outer Space Treaties uh, negotiation. And the second two thirds, only one was functionally uh, sort of vocal, right? Uh, which is a major shame, right? And also impacts the law as we see it. So the law as it were, was mainly written by two states. That history is important because the way that something we call a global commons is, is governed should in theory be global and common. And the way that we, uh, historicize and remember the kind of history of international law changes what we consider uh, uh, kind of the current law or lex uh, sort of render lata today. Right. So is the idea of global commons in terms of, of its relationship with space, is how is that captured in the Outer Space Treaty uh, as it stands today? Um, yeah. So res communis doesn't appear anywhere in, I think, almost any treaty I've found, um, space or otherwise. Maybe I'm wrong, but 
I've done some looking, um, but it is sort of a container for rules that come from a different kind of set of articles across the Outer Space Treaty. So first, Article 1, I think, is the most important, which says that space should be used uh, sort of uh, in the interests of all countries, irrespective of their state of development. And that subclause was the only part I can trace down to have been, it was written by Brazil, as opposed to the US or Russia. Um, it also says, Article 1, that space should be used, uh, it should be free for all countries. And there's a difference in the North read freedom to mean sort of a, a Grotian sort of, we can do whatever, as long as it doesn't hurt someone else's direct rights. And the South saw this as when we have the chance to get to space, we should have the same opportunities and have the same sort of freedom of ability that you have now. So that's sort of the crux of the commons. And then there's some other bits too, non-appropriation, peaceful use, some basic environmental preservation. Right, um, and, and there's the idea of equity, equitable distribution as well. Yeah, so that was more in the, so this is the interesting thing. It's the common heritage of mankind uh, sort of is credited to having been born from a uh, speech by the Maltese ambassador Pardo months after the OST was concluded. And so okay. in our kind of ideas, we separate those two chapters. And then space is considered the common heritage under the Moon Treaty, which is very undersigned. But the common heritage regime isn't looked at as having kind of been relevant in space. But we don't trace the history of words, we trace the history of ideas. And the parts of it were very much important all throughout the uh, space debates. And specifically what you just said, uh, sort of distribution of, of resources or information was a key point for different global South states in different ways. Right. So that, that's interesting that, that you talk about that because I was reading another blog of yours and this one I actually read. Uh, international lawyers look to the heavens before we lose them. Uh, so, yeah. so, 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 in, in that you talk about you know the advent of you know companies and private corporations like Elon Musk's uh, Starlink program, just placing you know satellites uh, in the outer space. If I'm if I'm not wrong, if that's the, the terminology. Uh, so, as it stands today, have are the are the existing actors or the or, which are you know operating in that sphere. Are they disregarding the idea of uh, global heritage and common heritage and global commons uh, when it when it comes to you know uh, engaging with the outer space uh, and how how does the law reconcile with that? So let's look at our Article One of the Outer Space Treaty because my the paper I recently wrote it mentions like forty words of law it's it's, it's that article. Um, the ways I, I mentioned how global North and South saw freedom differently, and they saw equity differently. One, the South saw it as a distributive thing, uh, an anti-colonial process, whereas the North saw it as fairness, maybe, or bare equality, bare freedom. Um, that difference plays into sort of what's called a hegemonic contestation idea. Basically, I argue that we need to read that article not as just words on a page, but as a battlefield in which North and South fought using weapons that were norms and values. They fought discursively to try and kind of arrange the future they wanted. Now, the Global South didn't necessarily have a sort of fair shot there, the international law being a system that, you know, is built by, for, and, and through Global North action. But they, we can't ignore those histories without also playing a part in erasing them. Um, to put it bluntly, I won't say that 
we're necessarily breaching international law by putting like Starlink satellites up there. No, not at all. Um, but it depends which international law you mean. Um, the sort of, there is a freedom to use space. There's also, from my point of view, a significant kind of importance to asking what other norms apply up there? Is it just a freedom? Is it just a place where only five treaties apply and nothing else? Or should we look at like systemic integration and environmental impact assessment, at least, uh, and procedural environmental rights as maybe ways of filling that gap? And there's a case in the DC Court of Appeals right now, which I'm not sure if it will go anywhere, but is one of the earlier cases in the US, which occupies like 70% of active satellites, um, that uh, is about that issue. Should there be an EIA and who should be able to speak for it like, and contribute to that? Right, so is there a right to environment in, in the outer space uh, and what does it look like? I mean, there isn't in any treaty and the right to environment in general is, is something that is very much developing. Interestingly, that's another example where the canon in your mind of you know, your international legal narrative changes how you view the right. When I started researching this, I thought, okay, the right to environment is new and very up in the air because I had been educated to a certain global north standard of what law is and looks like. But if you look at the Global South, and there's a great article and symposium by Jacqueline Peel and Jolene Lin and the American Journal of International Law about this. If you look at the Global South, uh, all rivers in Bangladesh have legal rights. Like the idea of uh, a mountain in New Zealand having rights, or even just the arguments made in litigation on right to an environment of quality that are in the Global South. The litigation is based on arguments like the sacred trust idea or uh, constitutional or existing rights or like all of these novel arguments that still don't seem to be moving a, a needle in the international sphere, right? Yeah. To me, to end, I think there is a right to environment. And I think we should start thinking about space as an environment. The actual right itself, I don't necessarily need to be justiciable or active now, but it is a way for me to try and communicate or uh, share a space citizenship or an orbital citizenship or an understanding of the sky is ours, which I think is pretty fundamental to how we act in space. Right. Um, do you think that the contribution of Global South and Whale Scholars, the way it's currently construed or limited on the, on, you know, on the sides, on the fringe, isn't that just limited to you know, sp space law, but all realms of international law? Uh, yeah. Would you say that that's an accurate assessment? For sure. And, and, you know, even the most reputable, you know, 12 scholars are still having to look at publications and journals of repute, which are Western or Northern, all right? Like, uh, what is it, like half of the judges on the ICJ right now had at least one degree from four European countries? Um, I, I mean, I count the Hague Academy, but like, yeah, the way, the way that we teach, learn, and progress the international legal kind of scholarship world is still very much limited. Um, that's true of all international law, including space law. But yeah. I think what's different about space from some other areas is that we claim to act for mankind and are obliged to act on in the interests of humankind. True. Yeah, I, I, guess, I guess that that, that makes sense. Uh, and, and the other thing that, that you mentioned about, you know, the, the European or Western 
domination uh, or influence in, in academia and in practice. That's also uh, you know reflected in Anthea Roberts' work on is international or international. That it's it's not it's very lopsided, uh, and it, it, the center is where you know lead, leaders in practice and academia of international uh, they're very cent centered around very few institutions uh, you know around the world. So I, I guess yeah. that that plays you know here as well. Um, mm -hmm. How inclusive do you think uh, international law is as a, as a field, uh, either in academia or in practice, in your experience so far? Um, I mean, my experience as someone with a disability who is who is neurodivergent, like to get to academic status in international law requires so many academic approvals, right? Admissions committees are filtering that process at each step, and uh, you know, as somebody who comes from a sort of Silicon Valley backgrounds, like it also requires a great deal of wealth and the ability to do internships for for little or no pay, and I have yeah. that and I do the other. So, you know, everybody's in, in a different boat, but there's so much filtration. Um, if you know, if one has a, a mental health problem in an academic program and it shows in their grades, that can make the difference in such a competitive. And field it's not accounted for anywhere, right? Even if you may explain it in the right way, like. Uh, numbers matter, right? Yeah. It doesn't even touching racism, sexism, uh, queer phobia, like everything else. Like it's, it's in, yeah. Uh, so, so in terms of that, I, I know that you have done some work on LGBTQ, uh, you know, rights as well. So have you, have you, you know, observed like queer phobia and, you know, some sort of resistance in, in terms of, you know, entering the profession uh, in, in your personal experience? I mean, I should say I'm like white cis and not the most uh, sort of diverse as, uh, of the queer family. But um, I, I think for me, not, not specifically, I, I've been lucky in that way maybe, but I've definitely noticed a way of correcting sort of, for instance, I, I am a somewhat less, like somewhat more feminine, somewhat less uh, quiet, you know, more, more loud person. I talk a lot. That is something that is true about me. It is also something that can be very common to the different ways that, that queer men are socialized. And at least in the societies I grew up in. And sometimes that can be uh, a factor for exclusion or a factor for kind of uh, judgment. And I'm not saying it's directly homophobia, no, but the ways that we kind of file acting gay or being gay or being yeah. queer overlap. And, and I guess it could also be very subtle in, in terms of you know, how it works. You know, it, it might not be that uh, explicit, uh, mm -hmm. but they, 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 there could be, you know, hierarchies. I, I don't know. I'm just, uh, you know, trying to understand. Right. Uh, and like, for instance, all through my international legal education, I was never taught by a Black woman, personally. I'm, I, I've met now uh, friends and professors who are Black women of international law, um, but I personally was not taught by them. And, and I can imagine for a lot of my friends who are black and, and, and women, like not seeing someone who looks like you in a field that is meant to rep represent the entire world and it's invisible college. What happens when you feel invisible in the invisible college? Yeah, that, that, that's, yeah. The, that's the irony. Uh, no, I, I, I think that, that if, you, if you go back to your earlier point about this, the sense of privilege that you need to actually enter this profession, especially in international law, you know, with 
uh, shitloads of unpaid internships uh, in all uh, international organizations and uh, you know NGOs and institutions and you know, and we have done earlier episodes you know about this and it, it's it's very I don't know I would call it hypocritical um, of, uh, or it's just very difficult for people who do not come from a privileged background uh, mm. to be able to be afford to be in this profession uh, yeah yeah or visas to get no pay or even when you work as an academic to get casualized in a way of having to do that like I'm so afraid to share when I had that article for two months I sent it one-on-one to friends with a like a a a bold apology because I was like I know you are already expected to do so much Hmm. um yeah it's it's wild that this is how human rights and like such important fields progress yeah and and I guess until those structural issues are addressed uh the sort of diversity that you know we're talking about it it's probably going to remain elusive Uh, yeah I mean even I'm like everything I've done space law wise for the past year or two or international law wise is all my own free time I'm I'm in law school studying like equity and land law like I'm not (laughs) this is all a side project um so like it's crazy to me that that that's the only shot I have to get a PhD is to also do a side project that gets my name in, in the right places how has been the reception, you know, so far of your work in space law? Because I see that, you know, your articles have been shared by, you know, people like Evan John Heller, uh, who was really, you know, appreciative. Uh, so, 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 so do you feel that there is there's some scope, uh, you know, in terms of further research in this area, not in ter- just terms of, you know, doing a PhD, uh, but just, you know, going forward, how does it add to the discourse uh, in, in this yeah. area? I think, first of all, Kevin John Heller, at all reading what I wrote, much less what he thought about it is, is insane to me. Like it, as someone who was reading opinion of regularly uh, in an undergrad, like this is crazy to me, right? Um, I, right now, the thing I've written is a lot closer to an essay or a think piece than it is like a PhD thesis, right? It's a lot more of me trying to bring histories to the fore and within there, I I've, was talking to a friend yesterday, there are three or four different ways I can think of to go to make a legal point. But the biggest thing for me is, so I was astonished the more I looked into history of space. And I only looked into it because I was a bit petulant because I kept getting told I didn't understand it. So I kept looking into it. And again, Oscar Schachter, the first full-time legal employee of the UN was running around the 1950s doing space law. McDougall and Laswell, who started the Yale New Haven School wrote in space law first, or sort of in the early stages. Uh, people who led the ILO were, were, were space lawyers first. And uh, Bella Unde, who was the representative of Peru, was uh, the first president, uh, was the first president of, of the UNGA from Peru, I believe, before he was a space lawyer. So the idea of kind of all of those people, Manfred Locks, all those people having been such big names and then now it's a joke was shocking to me. And even worse is the more I looked into the UN record, both the Committee on Space and then also the GA, once realizing that there was an exclusion uh, happening, some of the best speeches I've ever read in the UN record were on space from non-invited countries like Peru, like Brazil, like El Salvador, talking about what was to them an issue of what are we as a community and, and why. Are we mankind or, or humankind or are we just a bunch of states? Because that was what for them was at stake. And it's um, like rhetorically brilliant and no one has read them. 
do you feel that this momentum can shift again uh, in space law? I hope so. Um, is I'm there a so demand for it? Is, is there any, any building movement uh, towards being more inclusive in terms of involving uh, Global South actors like you've mentioned again? So now the problem is, for instance, India was one of the most like ardent supporters of environmentalism in space in the 60s. And in 2019, they had an ASAT test that caused a huge debris cloud. The actors we think of as the good guys then are not necessarily the good guys now. And indigenous people, civil society, and the general populace, which weren't on the third world's map back then, yeah. are in the middle south now. But there isn't necessarily the same movement because colonization happens in an epistemological sense too. And the way that we look at space and talk about space is very rooted in American ideas of it. And in a way they've won. I, I want there to be more discussion. And it, it's my goal by bringing up this history to maybe change the discussion or change our view of what is possible in space and in international law generally. But that'll take a lot of work. And I, I, it's not, it's everyone. So this is, does this uh, narrative building or this you know, epistemological uh, uh, colonization, as you said, does it feel like a precursor to actual colonization to whenever it happens uh, in, on Mars or somewhere else? Uh, I mean, yeah, just the way we talk about Martian expansion is, is, is so colonial, right? Like there's, for instance, so I wrote this blog post about Elon Musk during the American elections that never ended, the like three week long elections last November. And I, SpaceX had claimed that it was writing a constitution for Mars. Now in the law of territorial acquisition, uh, legislative or executive like acts are seen as kind of uh, steps like state acts, right? Like the idea that an effective day could be launched by you know, SpaceX as an extension of the US government was not completely foreign to me. Companies have done that in the past. I'm half Dutch. We definitely did that. Uh, and the idea that that you are like able to just go to a new place and and start making a constitution as a way of escaping obligations elsewhere is is a worrisome thing. Like, do we want orbit to become a factory floor where there's no labor rights? It's convenient, to, isn't it? To you know right? just just, just uh pretend that every new place is, every such uh, sphere is terra nullius uh, and just, you know, st start reinventing the wheel again and coming up with your own constitution. Uh, Somebody get Victoria here. Like we need to justify this somehow, right? Like we're doing the same exercise that Grotius and Victoria did and legitimizing empire before, but yeah. now we don't have an idea of the past. We're calling ourselves enlightened and future focused. Mm. Um, it's yeah, that, wild. That, 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 that's an incredible comparison that, 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 uh, that's that's food for thought. It's, uh, I the guess same that's... has always been a leg, uh, an empire legitimizing thing, with the exception of when it was used in the Antarctic and space debates in Love the Sea mm. by the Global South in a thicker sense to include equity and environmental management. Yeah. That's the only time it's really meant something more. Yeah, that, 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 that makes sense. Uh, I guess we can only be hopeful that, you know, uh, the, the, the narrative becomes more inclusive uh, down the line. Uh, mm. But yeah, there, there are a lot of challenges, as you've rightly mentioned. Um, how has Cambridge been? Uh, mm. And, and it's, it seems, seems interesting that, you know, to do 
a bachelor's you know after doing an llm for yeah. somebody would you know ask that question but but you said that you wanted to get that qualification to practice i i definitely did i i didn't I, I did my LLM again on the interaction of domestic and international law. So I thought if I don't know half of that, it seems like I'm missing out. Um, and I, yeah, so Cambridge has been interesting. Again, I arrived kind of as UCU strikes were happening. Um, so the, the teachers union, um, I arrived as uh, COVID was, was, you know, one semester away. And uh, annoyingly, I had a bit of a medical issue last spring, which means that my two-year law degree, which was accelerated, is now three years anyway. Um, so well, I wait for exams to happen. That must be frustrating, I'm, I'm sure. I have a few months off. Hopefully, I can get paid at some point. But yeah. Um, but so Cambridge has been odd. I miss international law a little bit because, I again, my day-to-day -day for a while has been domestic law in the UK. Um, but I've definitely also learned a lot and that's important. But you have a great side hustle of space law. So I'm, I'm guessing you're not missing it that much. <laughs> no, and you know what's funny? A lot of the kind of Cambridge go-getters in law, uh, law school, like the 19 year olds who are were like willing to cut your throat to get ahead. Mm. I'm not gonna say that that's a bit of a hyperbole, but when you tell them that you want, want to do academic space law, you can see like, I'm not competition anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so that way, I have a lot of friends. Yeah. Um, that, that's thought, a win-win situation, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh well. Uh, and and so uh, so you you how long ha are you into the program now? So I'm I'm just waiting. I was going to take my final exams and turn my thesis in in sort of May June, just passed, and because of a medical thing, I have to wait till they're happening next year. Uh, but otherwise, I'm all finished. Okay, the, the congratulations, and, and I hope you know it, it uh, ends smoothly, uh, as smoothly yeah. as possible in these uh, challenging uh, times. Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess we, we. Sorry. Then I'm applying for PhDs. I guess. Yeah. Uh, good luck with that, uh, and you know I, I'm sure that you'll end up somewhere great. Uh, it's going to be uh, you know a, a challenging process. I'm sure it seems <laughs> very challenging from the uh, you know from the outside. Uh, but, but, but I guess the, 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 there's, uh, there's a lot of room for, you know, more discourse, especially in areas like space law, uh, which are not being explored as much now as uh, they should, should be, I guess. Yeah. I, I, and sort of, I am trying, I'm very interested both in the theory and the doctrinal conundrums that just happen in space naturally because of what it is. Hmm. And I think there's so much discussion kind of yet to be had just in general by, by treaty lawyers and by legal theorists and philosophers, just using space as a setting as opposed to a field. Right. Um, so I think we'll just uh, end soon. Uh, this, 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 this has been a lot of fun. I, I, I hope for you as well. Um, uh, how, how do you think uh, climate change fits into this whole discourse of uh, you know, uh, outer space uh, violations and you know, space debris and cluttering? Uh, uh, do, you, do you think that, that that would be a priority for states right now, given that they have bigger uh, concerns, uh, in, just in terms of political uh, terms? Yeah, I should say one historical point, and then I promise I'll answer the question. Lisa Ruth Rand is someone who writes about this, but the I idea of environmentalism was being born as space was sort of becoming a zone of operation. And India, again, was like, there's an article from the Times of India in 1964, I believe, 
talking about the atmospheric and ozone dangers of spaceflight, right? And really mm-hmm. linking those issues. A lot of former colonies had been sites of environmental de- destruction for colonial gain. And they saw very much that space would just be a continuation of that if there wasn't something done. So this was something that was linked to already way long ago. Space environmentalism is not a new thing. Now, climate change is impacting space debris as well. The ways that orbital debris interacts with like the atmosphere and experiences drag. Um, for me, I, I tie that word to RuPaul, I'm not a physicist, but from what I understand, mm-hmm. uh, or a drag is difference when the atmosphere is, is undergoing a massive influx of carbon. Maybe uh, there's New York Times article mm-hmm. I can say. I, I, yeah, I, I guess India's carbon emissions weren't as high in 1969, so probably yeah. they could be afford to be more, you know, uh, forward and you know advocate the cause back then uh, compared to now. And I would also point out there's a lot to be gained. This isn't necessarily a mutually exclusive thing. The jurisprudence again that we're developing for climate change, you know, in domestic courts not just our agenda, but in the global South as well. Mm. Um, India has a massive jurisprudence as well. Brazil, um, uh, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's insane. And they're also cross-siting each other, which is really cool. And that's not, that's a hop, skip and a jump away from helping to deal with the space debris issue too. Right. Cool. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Right, so I, I will. Uh, uh, so I'm out of questions. Uh, oh. And if there's something that you'd like to add, you know, before we part. Um, I, again, my background is generalist. I'm very much like interested in, in sort of so many different areas. Enforced disappearance uh, is an area I've worked on compared to sexual orientation law. Like, please feel free to message on Twitter if you ever feel like chatting. Uh, I'm such an international law nerd in general. Um, I'm at Chris V-E-I-J-K. And um, Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> Great. So we'll add your Twitter handle and also uh, a link to your uh, Linktree profile, I guess. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, with, with, with the podcast. So you can go check out Chris's work over there. And also he's uh, very active on Twitter. Uh, and he's been uh, trending for the past week for you know some uh, outstanding work uh, on space law. So thank go you. check that out. I'll attach uh, links to those articles as well which we discussed uh, in the podcast. Uh, And yeah, I I hope you enjoyed this episode and, uh, you know, I'll see you in the next one. Thank you. Bye everyone.